Thanks. Great to see you all. Thank you so much to those of you who prayed for me over the last week as I was in Vancouver for most of the week. And my flight, rather than landing at 9.30 p.m., landed at 3.30 a.m. God bless Air Canada. (laughs) Jesus told us that we should bless those who persecute us. Pray for our enemies. Anyway, I'm not telling you that just for any other reasons that you have pity on me. I like it when people feel sorry for me. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 17. That's our passage, and let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for your many varied graces in our lives. At least once a week here in church, we just pause to consider all the ways that you've been good to us. And indeed, there are more than we could ever number, so many that we take for granted. But Father, today we especially thank you for this grace from you to meet together in the name of Jesus and hear from your word. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work as we consider the scriptures. That our hearts would indeed trust more and more in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, Bible's open to Acts 17. Now, if you've been paying attention over the last several years in particular, you've probably noticed seismic shifts in Western culture. Hands up if you've noticed. Right. And it appears to be accelerating all the more. The world that I grew up in in the 1980s would be unrecognizable to children growing up today. And for those of you who grew up in the 1950s and 60s, you're probably thinking, where am I? There are so many different things that have changed, right? It would appear at a first look that all of these independent, compartmentalized changes in society and culture just happen to be taking place at the exact same moment. But upon a closer look, you'll see that the thing that unifies all of these various changes is one simple truth. The battleground for all of these changes is the battle for truth itself. Is there such thing as truth? Is it knowable? Is truth subject to every individual's experience? Or is there such thing as objective truth? Say it a different way. Does truth exist whether you realize and affirm it or not? Or is truth a construct that you come up with either individually or collectively in your various social groups? Well, that is a philosophical question that is quite intriguing in the abstract and in the classroom. But you find that in everyday life, in a practical sense, this question becomes far less entertaining as it's pushed to the points of absurdity. Day by day, we are pressed upon to affirm things that we know are not true. We are told that we must suspend all of our senses. We must take everything that's been passed down to us over generations as aggregated truth 
and put it on the shelf and we must affirm things that we know are not true. Well, the Christian man or woman, in fact, knows that you do that to your own peril. Every time you affirm something that you know is not true, it costs you a little piece of your soul. But we're going to talk about more of that in a moment. At the same time, we know that many of the things that are most deeply true are things that you cannot ascertain by your own senses. They are things that you can't touch or see or smell or taste. Because, in fact, they're not things at all. Like the truth of God. Like the truth of who you are as a human being before God. Created in his image, fallen from grace, and for many, restored and redeemed in Christ. You could never figure that out from your own senses. Well, in today's passage, Paul and Silas are going to continue their missionary journey. They've built together and accumulated this small missions team. Um, And this is, for Paul, his second missionary journey. But they are continuing on in that. And as we read through these verses, verses 1 to 15, we will see the role of truth and the role of human reason play out in two cities. Thessalonica, and Berea. Come in. I don't even know what that was. All right, first Thessalonica. Uh, The map is coming up behind me. I think maps sometimes help. I learned this from Kelvin at his house. Maps help to orient people. Oh, the map will be there in one second. I don't even have my laser pointer this morning, so I kind of like that little gadget. Oh, you can forget it. Yeah, don't even bother. Anyway, you can picture in your mind's eye that the team is now making their way around through Thessalonica, and then they're going to make their way down into Berea. There's the map. So you can locate it there on the map. Um, They began in Antioch. They came through Tarsus, Derbe, Iconium, Lystra, Antioch, Troas, Philippi. Do you remember that last week? And then from Philippi, they're going to Thessalonica, and then they're going down to Berea, and then Paul and the gang will be expelled out to Athens. So that's the map. Let's look first at verses 1 to 9 in Thessalonica. Verse 1, Paul and Silas arrive in Thessalonica. You'll notice immediately that it's apparent that Luke has dropped out of this leg of the missionary journey. Did you see that? He records, now when they had passed. For the last few chapters, last few episodes, we've noticed that Paul, that Luke writes, we, he now switches to they. So it's Paul and Silas. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. When Paul gets to Thessalonica, he does what was already his custom, and he goes straight for the synagogue. We're told that for three Saturdays in a row, Paul stands up in the synagogue, and he reasons from Scripture. Do you see that? Paul is so deeply convinced that truth is only known by the Word of God. 
that he commits himself to three consecutive weeks of standing up in the synagogue and telling them, no, this is what the scriptures say. He reasons from scripture. Well, let's talk first about the role of reason. As human beings, God has given us the faculty of reason. And it is a useful faculty in so many ways. It helps us to determine common things. Apart from simple reason, you wouldn't be able to map your way through an average day. But reason alone can be problematic. Did you notice that Paul doesn't simply stand up in the synagogue and reason with them? What does he do? Reasons from Scripture. Here's the problem with reason. It's at least twofold. The first problem, if we bring only reason to bear on determining truth, is that our capacity, our facility to reason, has been marred by sin. When Adam and Eve failed to trust in the word of God in the garden, and sin entered into the cosmos, sin's curse was comprehensive. It touched everything. The Protestant reformers refer to this as total depravity. Now, when the Protestant reformers talked about total depravity, they did not mean that everything and everyone is as totally bad as they could ever be. That's not what total depravity and the comprehensive nature of sin means. Instead, what it means is that the curse of sin is comprehensive. There is not one part of my body, of my mind, of my spirit, of my soul that goes untouched by sin, including my reason. What this means is that if I try to reason my way into truth by reason alone, I'll never get there. Because my reason is twisted by sinful selfishness, by sins of anger and pride. So reason alone will not get you to truth. I was thinking about this actually when Brock put out the call for the Christmas choir. I was thinking, he said, you know, if you are a decent singer, and I was like, man, I think I'm a decent singer. And then I was like, well, but maybe that's just my own sinful reasoning. Maybe I need an outside source to confirm whether I'm a reasonably good singer or not. Because my own reason leads me to believe that I'm a good singer, but people who sit beside me may not think so. And so if you're considering trying out for the choir, don't just think if you're a decent singer, that's just your own reason. Find the person in your family who likes you the least and ask them. <laughs> that's the problem of reason alone. You can lie to yourself. I'll give you a more serious example. If you bring reason alone to bear on the question of truth, you're going to draw the wrong conclusions because we have perverted reason that's been twisted by sin. So you look out over the world and you see people who are financially successful. And if all you use is your own reason, you would look at that and say, well, they must be succeeding because they are virtuous and God is blessing them. Or maybe you look out over the world and you see people who are poor and struggling, and if you rely only on your reason, you think, well, they must be struggling because they are wicked and evil and God is punishing them. But if you reason from Scripture, 
you see that neither of those are necessarily true. Your reason has been corrupted by sin, and you, so you can't trust reason alone to bring you to truth. The other reason that, um, the other factor that means that you cannot rely strictly on reason is not only is it sinful, but it's also limited. When a Christian man or woman says, look, you can't just rely strictly on your own reason, it's not only because it's perverted by sin, it's also because we believe that the truth of God is revealed to us by God, not deduced and surmised by human imagination. Okay, too abstract. Let me say it differently. Because our reason is not only sinful but limited, we believe that truth comes to us revealed from God to human beings. Human beings do not look up to God and try to build a picture of who he is. Why is that? We're incapable of reasoning our way into truth by reason alone. You have a three and a half pound brain. There are limits to what it can comprehend. A three and a half pound brain cannot imagine eternity. A three and a half pound brain cannot understand nothingness. Have you ever tried to think about nothing? The moment you try to think about nothing, you're thinking about something. See, your reason alone is not trustworthy to lead you to truth. Because it's sinful and it's limited. That's why Paul doesn't just reason to them in the synagogues. But in verse 2, we're told he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Our reason needs an outside logic and source revealed from God. Now, as Christian men and women, we know that God has ordained that there would be ordinary means of his grace. Things that we can employ in our day-to-day -day life as Christians to seek out truth and to map meaning in the world. Those ordinary means of grace from God include the scriptures, the sacraments, and prayer. God has established that it's through those ordinary means, that it's through his word, that his spirit works. His spirit, that we're told in John 14, is called the very spirit of truth. Now, you might be thinking, okay, that's fine, R.D., so the spirit of God um, is at work leading us into truth but it can't only be through Scripture, because Jesus said in John 13 that the Spirit moves where it will. Well, the, the answer is, well, no, that's, that's absolutely the case. The Spirit of God can reveal truth in many different sundry ways, right? It's possible. But the point of the everyday ordinary means of grace is not that it's the only way that the Spirit of God can lead to truth. It's that it is the trustworthy way that he always will. Reasoning through Scripture, because Scripture is the promised way that the Holy Spirit will lead you into truth. So Paul reasoned from Scripture in Thessalonica. 
Because Scripture is the Word of God. And the Spirit brings it to life in the hearts of those that he is saving to lead them into all truth. Here's one of my pet peeves. Drives me bananas when Christians or pastors say things. Look, they're well-meaning, but they say things like, we just seek to make the word of God relevant. You don't make the word of God relevant. The word of God is relevant. You might apply it and appropriate it and show its relevancy, but you do not make it anything. It is truth, empowered by the Spirit, whether you acknowledge it or not. We simply apply it, unleash it, and demonstrate its inherent relevance and worth. So look, is that your conviction? You live in a world where truth is up for grabs, truth is the battleground, do you believe, do you have confidence in the word of God? Do you have conviction that it is the word of God that the spirit of God uses to do the work? Well, I think we have to pause on this point for a moment. We're building a picture for how we arrive at truth by reasoning from Scripture, not reasoning alone. We've posited that it is through reasoning through Scripture that the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of truth, leads us into all truth. And so now it's worth pausing just to note that there are far too many Christians who are vaguely optimistically, pie in the sky, hoping that the Holy Spirit will fall upon them randomly and do his good work of leading them into all truth. Maybe in a song or maybe in a feeling. There are too many who grope around in the fog of this sin-ridden world and life. They're trying to put together enough pieces to map meaning and make sense of the world. hoping that the Holy Spirit will fall upon them randomly so that they can make sense of it and find truth. Or in another case, there are far too many Christians who are hoping that the Spirit of God will just randomly fall upon their friends and their loved ones and cause them to be saved. Lead them to truth, just randomly, you know? That their family members will be walking down the street and the Holy Spirit will fall on them and they'll be saved just like they'd catch a cold. And listen, it can happen. It can happen. But the sure, trustworthy, promised way that it will happen is through the power of the Word of God. That's how the Spirit's work is promised to lead into all truth every time. So use the means that God has ordained and given to you. This is the work of the Holy Spirit every time that those who are being saved hear the word of God. So why would you wish and hope for something in your life? Why would you wish and hope for truth to come to bear on your friends and family members when you can actually go to the trustworthy, promised way and know for sure that it will? This is why Paul doesn't leave it to chance. 
but he reasons truth from Scripture. All right, verse 4, we're told that the Holy Spirit has used that, no surprise, and has persuaded some of them. Reasoning from Scripture, empowered by the Spirit, has led some of these people in Thessalonica from lives of error to truth. The Word does the work. Have you ever considered Paul's missionary methods as he travels? Look, this is the man who had the single most amazing personal testimony ever. And yet, in Acts, he only appeals to that personal testimony three times. Instead, time and again, in synagogue after synagogue, by riverside and every place he goes, he reasons from Scripture. He appeals to the Word of God. And the result, verse 8, is the same as the result here in Thessalonica. These unbelieving Jews, they they have a look at what's happening as a result of this spirit-empowered reasoning from Scripture, and they rightly conclude and accuse Paul, saying he's turning the entire world upside down. You know, that's what the Word of God at work does. It turns the world upside down. It turns your world upside down. We're going to pick that up in a moment. Let's look in verse 3 at the three things that Paul reasons to the Thessalonians from Scripture. In verse 3 it says, He was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So the first thing that Paul's reasoning from Scripture is sort of an overarching thing. He's reasoning that There are special attributes of God that you cannot deduce from just your observation of the natural world. You have to go to Scripture. This means that if you look out over a beautiful fall day and you see the lovely colors and the sun shining, you can look at that and by your own reason, you can still conclude that God exists, that he's elegant, that he's given to beauty, that he holds things together. You can conclude those things. But it's only through reasoning in Scripture that you would ever know by the power of the Spirit that you are a sinner living in open rebellion against the King and that the King has made a way of amnesty for you to be reconciled through the cross. So there are general things that you can know. But Paul here is reasoning from Scripture and showing in this broad sense that there are things you can only know from the Bible. Two things in particular. Look at verse 3. He was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. This is a special attribute of God that you could never know from just reasonably observing the world. That all of humanity lives under the curse of sin. But that God in his mercy came in human form 
so that he would live a life of perfect obedience that you and I could never do in faithfulness. That he could die on a cross to pay the debt for our sin, something we could never pay. That he would rise to new life so that death is no longer the final word for us. This is what Paul was reasoning from the scriptures. In verse 3, the third thing that he was reasoning from scriptures is that Jesus is the Christ. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. Well, that is a truth you only know from scripture. And it was the single most offensive thing back then. And it remains the thing that is most offensive to our world about Christians today. So we're told that this message was turning the world upside down. The world is turned upside down by the revealed truth of God in his word, empowered by the spirit. Your world is turned upside down by the word of God, empowered by the spirit. We started off saying that the world is radically changing and not for the better. I've had conversations with many parents who are concerned for their children growing up in the world today. Grandparents who are genuinely praying and concerned because their grandchildren are heading out into a world of unimaginable wickedness and growing evil. We would all like to see the world change for the better. How does change truly happen? How does the world get turned upside down? Somehow we all default to this idea that real change happens at an institutional level from the top down. What we need are better structures, better organizations, better systems. What we need are more events, more protests. But in fact, what we see in scripture is the opposite. That the gospel works at the grassroots. That real change in society happens from subsidiarity, from the bottom up. From the smallest, it affects the largest. Let me tell you what I mean. The world is turned upside down and changed for the better when individual men and women are saved and born again. Then they are a force for good and an influence for good in their families. And then families are saved and born again by the Spirit, by the revealed Word of God. And then they become a force for good in communities. And then communities affect cities. And then cities affect provinces. And then provinces affect states. Do you see how that works? That's how the world is turned upside down by the word of God. By growing concentric circles that begin with individuals who are converted by the gospel of Jesus. What Jesus had in mind in Matthew 13. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a little bit of yeast that's worked into a lump. And have you ever thought about how yeast works? First of all, it's a miserable word to say, isn't it? Yeast. Kind of gross. 
But yeast is tiny and small, and its workings are microscopic. And Jesus was saying, if you want to see an entire lump raised, risen, the kingdom of heaven is like the tiniest little microscopic yeast that begins small and individual and microscopic, but multiplies both in number and in influence and affects the entire lump. What happened in Thessalonica? The word of God, by the power of the Spirit, led people to truth that changed them and then began to grow within the lump until it radically affected everything to the point that they were accused of turning the world upside down. So the world is turned upside down. Look at verse 4. Then in verse 5, the effect reaches Jason's household. I think it's more accurate for us to say not that the world was turned upside down, but rather that the upside down world was turned right side up. That's what the word of God does. And what upset them, verse 7, was this particular statement. That Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. Friends, this is a central Christian tenet. That there is a Lord, and it's not Justin Trudeau. It's not you. It's not whatever forces or or people who try to usurp the throne and try to assert their own influence or direction. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone holds all the prerogatives and all the sway. And we obey him. And sometimes that will mean that we obey him by obeying the government. And sometimes, as you see here, it's going to force us to say, government, we pray for you, but we cannot go there because there is another Lord. His name is Jesus, and so we must disobey you. Look, it's right there in the text. It's that kind of commitment to the word of God and truth that turns the world upside down, that turns an upside down world right side up. So that's what happens in Thessalonica. Paul shows up, he reasons from scripture, the Holy Spirit causes individuals to be born again. Those individuals then multiply to the point that the world is turned upside down because they're saying, we have a Lord, his name is Jesus. That's how truth lives out in Thessalonica. Let's look quickly at Berea before we close. Verses 10 to 13. So in verses 10 to 11, we're told that these Jews in Berea were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica. Why is that? Well, we're told back in Thessalonica that apart, in verse 4, apart from some and apart from many devoted Greeks and not a few of the women back in Thessalonica, that the gospel was largely met with hostility there. The word was reasoned to them. The spirit brought truth to bear on them that Jesus is Savior and Lord. But by and large, the people in Thessalonica still chose lies over truth. What an odd thing. Why would someone ever choose lies over truth? It just seems so obvious, doesn't it? And yet, friends, we do it all the time. We choose comfortable lies 
over true. Even as Christians, we capitulate to avoid even the mildest of persecutions. We will choose a lie over truth. Sometimes we choose not only comfortable lies, but we choose popular lies. We choose to live out of lies because we know that they're going to gain us some sort of social cred. And so we press into those, even though we know the truth of Jesus. Well, as the ground beneath our feet continues to shift, I believe it's increasingly important for us to grow in our conviction as Christians and in our boldness. To be willing to pay the price that truth demands. That's what happened in Thessalonica. But in Berea, verse 11, they were more noble. Why? Because they received the word with all eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What does it say there in verse 11? That the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they received the word lukewarmly. It says, with all eagerness. Does it say that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they studied the word once a week when they met together in church? Or they studied the word when there was nothing better on Netflix? No. They daily studied the word to see if these things were so. Verse 12, and many believed. There are two things to take away from the Bereans. Okay? The first one, if you are here this morning and you are a seeker, you are seeking after God. Well, the first thing to say is there is no such thing as a seeker. You are not seeking God. He's seeking you. And that's why you have those feelings of being drawn to him. I hope that you find a lot of assurance in that truth. It's not because you're seeking him. You have those flickers of faith because he's seeking you. All right. But if you're a seeker, because <laughs> that's the category that everyone understands, what do you do? Well, like the Bereans, you come to the scriptures with an open posture. You don't hold them at arm's length. You receive the word with all eagerness. And the second thing that you do is you examine it. You want to see the power of God at work in your life, and you're just tire-kicking on Christian faith. Find a more mature Christian who will sit with you over the course of weeks and months and read the Gospel of John together. Unleash the power of God's word. And you will be saved, and you will be more noble. All right, that's if you're, you know, kicking around Christianity. What about if you're a, a longtime Christian? What does this have to say to you? Well, if you're a longtime Christian, the Bereans ought to inspire us and call us to diligent Bible study. We often talk in terms of Bible reading, and that's valuable and important. We, we ought to just be reading through scriptures as a matter of course, listening to the Bible on audiobook. But there's a special place given in the Christian life to Bible study. Rolling up your sleeves. 
and examining the scriptures. Because it's in Bible study that you will find truth. Your heart and your mind will be conformed to a new way of thinking and living. And day by day you'll be saved. That's the Thessalonians and that's the Bereans. And friends, this is what we as Christians have to offer to a world that is unmoored. A world that is awash in lies from Satan. We have the Holy Scriptures that are a north star to help people navigate their lives and lead them ultimately to salvation in Jesus Perhaps you've had that experience where you've come to the scriptures and because of the Spirit's work in revealing those scriptures to you, you begin to behold the dominion and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And for you, that's a dreadful thing. You now see that there is a Lord and Savior who prescribes human behavior and then you see that so much of your life is lived in rebellion against that. Well, friends, it's in Scripture that you see that this is a king who does not kill rebels but dies for them. He's meek and lowly. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not put out. And so the church is this collection of saved, born-again people whose lives are now oriented around the truth of God revealed in Scripture, and we become a bastion of truth in a lost world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. I pray that you would deepen our commitment and our convictions, that we would not rely only on our reason, but that our reason would be formed and shaped by the warp and woof of Scripture. God, would you grant us holy desires like the Bereans, that we would give ourselves to joyfully receiving and studying your word, and that through that truth revealed to us, we might not only map meaning for our own lives and be saved, but be a force for good in the world around us. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you.